you've been here at Calvary Chapel for any length of time, you've probably noticed that I really like to talk about the Trinity. And I don't know that that's unusual among pastors, but I feel like it comes up a lot. It's what we believe about God. It's a very deep and very mysterious doctrine. If you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know we just did seven episodes on this. And uh, I, I hope we got some edifying things put out there. But one of the most compelling truths of that doctrine, one of the most exciting parts of discussing the Trinity, as well as I believe one of the strongest arguments in its favor, is what I'll call today the Trinitarian shape of the gospel. What I mean by that is the way we are saved is described in the Bible in the language of the Trinity, as we just read. Paul is here reminding Titus, he's writing this letter to Titus, who is the pastor of the churches in Crete, which is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, and he had just talked about what we ourselves once were. He's telling the people to be kind and to be loving, and he tells them to be kind and loving because you remember what it was like when you were a sinner and you were walking in unrighteousness, so don't get all uppity and full of yourself and thinking these people don't deserve love and kindness because you deserved or didn't deserve love and kindness and received it anyway. But now he's going to, he's going to say, all right, this is what we were, here's what changed. And he's going to describe the gospel. And he's going to describe the gospel as what it is, as the initiative of God. Salvation is something that God has done for us. It is not something that we have done for ourselves. That's kind of the point, isn't it? If we could have saved ourselves, then we wouldn't have needed saving. We wouldn't have needed redemption. And because this is the initiative of God, it stands to reason that the nature of God can be seen through the salvation of God. When you look at what God did through saving us, it teaches you something about who God is. It teaches us about not just what God thinks and what God does, but about his very nature. And Paul is going to describe this gospel, this good news, is what gospel means, is good news in the language of the Trinity. What has God done for you? Paul's going to answer that question today of what God has done for you. Maybe you've ever wondered, maybe even said to yourself, what God ever do for me? Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you this morning. And as we see, the revelation of God's salvation is, in fact, the revelation of God himself as well. As we see what he's done, it's going to teach us an awful lot about him. So let's start by reviewing what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Maybe you've heard that. You kind of know you're supposed to believe it. You're just not quite sure. Maybe you sit here and you think this seems like an overcomplication of what the Bible actually says. Why can't we just believe in God? Well, we believe in the Trinity because of what the Bible says. The Bible gives us these pieces of information that when you put them all together, there's no other conclusion to come to. And without going into all of that, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time proving the Trinity today as much as reminding us of what it says, but here in these verses, you've got a textbook example of what is called a Trinitarian formula. You see, as we go through verses 4 through 7, he talks about God, our Savior, and then the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the New Testament is filled with verses like this. I'm going to read not all of them. I don't have time. I'll just do five. How's that? Uh, Matthew 28, 19, probably the most famous one, where Jesus told his disciples, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Boom, boom, boom. There's the Trinity. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. This is the Apostle Paul. says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's how he closes his letters with a Trinitarian benediction. He's blessing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9, 14. Maybe Paul, maybe not. So, very interesting. Is this just a Paul thing? No, it's not. He says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works? So you see, again, he's describing what God did through saving us in Trinitarian language. 1 Peter 1 verse 2. Well, I don't know if I believe in Paul. Peter was the original guy. I've met people that will say things like that. Well, what does Peter say? He's describing the saints in 1 Peter 1, 2. He's describing who we are. He says, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? 
means that you've been foreknown by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Trinitarian language. Jude 20-21, another author of the New Testament. He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. The point I'm trying to make is, this is how the New Testament writers spoke. And there's others that I could list. I tried to give you some of the most obvious ones, give you representative from the gospel, from Paul, from the anonymous epistle, from Peter, from Jude. I mean, to talk about John and the Trinity is kind of tedious. He kind of gives us most of what we have about it. So all of this, including the passage this morning, reminds us that this is true. So let's remind ourselves of what this doctrine means so that we can start to grasp its substance, as we can grasp this passage as it's, as it's written. This is theology now. Stick with me. This is important. You can get this. We get our, our modern definition, the language that we use to describe the Trinity, comes from a guy named Athanasius. Athanasius was one of the probably top five heroes of the Christian faith throughout its history, at least in my opinion. And he gave us a creed, which is a written description of what the church believes. It's not scripture, but it's the church's way of consolidating what does scripture say? What does it mean to be a Christian? And his summary statement is, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither dividing the substance nor confounding the persons. Leave that quote up there while I explain some of this so you all can see what we're talking about here. First of all, one God in Trinity. So Christians only believe in one God. That should be painfully obvious, right? We are what's called monotheists. Mono meaning one, theist meaning believer in God. Monotheists. So some people will say, well, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, isn't that three gods? Don't believe in, in tritheism? No, we absolutely do not. We believe in one God. So he uses this, this language of the substance. Maybe you've heard it called the essence of God. It's the, it's the defining nature of something. So you have the substance of humanity. That's what you are. A tree has the substance of a tree. A goldfish has the attribute of goldfishness, right? So what we believe is there is only one entity in all of existence that has the characteristic of godness or deity. There's only one, and his name is Jehovah, Yahweh, however you want to vocalize that. Only one God. But also, he says, Trinity in unity. So we believe that there are three in one. God is three persons. It's not proper to talk about God being constituted of three persons or that three persons have come together to make God. No, God is Three persons. You are the substance of man and a single person. You might say, well, that's just the way it is. Well, actually, we are lesser than our God is. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all described in the Scripture as being God. Fully God and fully personal. And yet they are not one another. So how do we reconcile this? It's called the doctrine of the Trinity. There's one God in three persons. And he says that there's two errors that we avoid. The first one is dividing the substance. That makes sense, doesn't it, right? You've got the, the Trinity, the substance of God. You don't want to start talking about God in such a way that you have carved him up into three pieces. That's called dividing the substance. It's not good. Because within the ontology of God, ontology is a Greek word that means being, okay? The nature of something, the being of something. Within the nature of God, ontology, there is absolute unity, if you start talking about God in such a way that the Father and the Son are pitted against each other, or that the Holy Spirit is just kind of along for the ride, you know, then, well, that's, you're getting into error there. There's certainly a balancing act of language here, but they are three distinct persons, but they are one. It's important to remember that. Now, within what's called the economy of God, economy, you think of like the working of money and how it all comes together. The word in Greek actually talks about the running of a household. So within the economy of God, which are the actions of God, there are distinct roles that each person plays. The other error to avoid is confounding the persons, where you say there's really no difference between the Father and the Son, or between the Spirit and the Father, or whatever it might be. There are distinct roles that each person plays. So this is the kind of the pieces all here. One God, three persons, don't split them up, and don't get them confused. One in three, and three in one. 
And I know this can be a little confusing for hearing it for the first time, but if you haven't heard it for the first time, it's good to remember this and be grounded in that. I've spent time on other days defending this from Scripture. Right today, all I'm doing is reminding us. And today's lesson is a splendid demonstration of what we call the economy of the Trinity, meaning the works of what the Trinity does. He's not so much focusing on the union of God here. He's focusing on the threeness, the works of the persons of the Godhead. Each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had a distinct part to play in your salvation. A distinct part to play in the act of redemption. You could also do this, by the way, with creating the world. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all described in the Bible as the Creator, the one who made the world. Same thing with the resurrection, where God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus says, I raised myself from the dead. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. And you can study those doctrines in that Trinitarian way. And Paul describes your salvation in the language of the Trinity. And it is important to note, by the way, Titus was written around 65 A.D., this is not a late doctrine that was invented later on. It was formalized later on. You know, you ever have something going on with your kids where everybody kind of knows what they're supposed to do, but then they maybe start to get an attitude about something and you have to like lay down the law. Okay, here's the rule. Do I really need to say this? You ever said that to your children before? Do I really need to tell you not to lick the window? Okay, there's, I, that's a real life example I'm using right there, right? It's like, okay, I thought we all kind of knew we don't lick windows. Apparently not, don't lick the window anymore. So now I can say, hey, you broke the rule. That's kind of how a lot of doctrine in the early church was formulated. Everybody agreed on these things, but you get people coming in, breaking the rules, causing trouble, bringing in false doctrines that cause the church to formalize. Okay, I guess we do have to say which books belong in the Bible and which ones don't. Because people are trying to throw some out or add some new ones. I guess we really do need to formalize the Trinity. And it's good that they did that. There's so much for us to learn here. That's just kind of the review of the doctrine. Three and one. Ontology, being, economy, the working of God. Knowing all that, reminding you of all that, let's see what Paul talks about here. We'll work through this, this passage. Uh, we might have to jump around a little bit because of the way he writes it, but we'll more or less go verse at a time. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So Paul's going to begin with God, our Savior, who we call the Father, God the Father. In the New Testament, quite often when it's talking about the Trinity, it'll use the term God to describe who Jesus would call his Father, and it will use the term Lord to describe Jesus Christ himself. There's some interplay with that, but that's, that's important to, to know. When he talks about our Lord, most of the time they're talking about Jesus. So the Father is the main subject. This is actually kind of a really long sentence here. And God the Father is the subject of the sentence. And it's going to trace that through all the way through the end. The controlling verb of this, you like this grammar? Here you go. God gave us a book, man. You got to study what the words mean. He says, God saved us. That's the fundamental, very short explanation of what he's saying. God saved us. We were this, but God saved us. And the rest of it is an explanation of how God has done that. Paul's going to give us the motivation of God, as well as the sovereign actions that God took to save us. And he gives us, the, at first, this, this conjunction, this contrastive conjunction, but we were, what was he saying in verse 3? We were foolish disobedient, slaves to our passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hating one another, but. So he says, but. That's a huge contrast. He's separating us from our previous lives. The whole point is we're not like that anymore. So the question would be, what changed? What changed? He says, something appeared. Something appeared. And that word for appeared in Greek is epiphane. It's where you get words like epiphany. Something appeared to me. Oh, wow, it's, it's an appearance of something. What stepped in? What came on the scene that was able to change us from being those hateful, foolish people? Well, he says God's goodness and loving kindness. It'd be a great Christmas message right there. That when Jesus was born, it was the goodness and the loving kindness of God being revealed to us. And these words are, are great here. That word for goodness is the Greek word Christates. Remember, we're reading a translated Bible, so it's good to study some of these original languages here. Christates, it, it, it's not 
like the word, uh, the other word would be agathos, which means like that moral quality of the good, right, with a capital G. This is more like being good to somebody. Kindness, it's translated sometimes. So God's kindness, and then his loving kindness. It's a double word there, but the word there in Greek is philanthropia. What does that sound like? Philanthropy. Right, so let's break that down. It's a, it's a compound word. Philos is like Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. Philos means love. And anthropia is like anthropology, which is the study of man, right? So anthropos means man. So you put those words together, philanthropia means the love of man. Love of mankind, which is why we call philanthropy. You're a lover of mankind. So know that. Paul says, what stepped in that changed the fact that we were rebellious, hateful, foolish people? God did. His kindness and his love for humanity. Have you ever considered the fact that that's the Old Testament God we're talking about there? I saw another ignorant video this week. Somebody talking about, I can't stand that Old Testament God. It's like, really? Because Paul says it was his philanthropy that stepped in to change your whole life. Everything we're about to discuss this morning takes place because of the disposition of heaven towards you. What do you think the attitude of heaven towards you is? It's love. Can you believe that? Now, if you're interested, oh, yes, I, I could believe that. Maybe you need another lesson, but a lot more of us have a hard time accepting the fact that not only do other people love me, God himself loves me. Psalm 139, Old Testament now, verses 17 and 18. The psalmist wrote, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and am still with you. God's thoughts towards you are as precious and as multitudinous as the sand on the seashore. You ever pick up a handful of sand? You ever try to count the grains of sand? I've never tried. Because I know, even if I think I've got it all, even if you think you've washed off all that sand, what's going to happen? You're going to be shaking it out of your, the floor mats of your car for the next six years. You might as well just get used to it. I guess that backpack has sand in it now. right? You're never getting it out. That's what the psalmist says God's thoughts towards us are like. Maybe you think God just doesn't care. I don't think that God is angry at me. I just don't think he ever thinks about me. You're wrong. God has precious thoughts toward you. I have precious thoughts for my children. I saw my, my little girl. You know, like with, with little girls, their hair is just kind of always all over the place because they're running around and playing. And, but every now and then you take their hair and you pull it back and you put a little bun in it and you can see kind of the woman they're going to grow into eventually. As a father, that just like rips your heart out. I'm just going to tell you. It's like, oh, that's my little lady. It's my little girl. Those are precious thoughts. And the Bible says those precious thoughts toward you from God are more than the sand of the seashore. You think you found them all. Nope, nope, there's a whole other pile right here. That's God's attitude towards you. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. That's another Trinitarian thought. Because God has always existed in harmony between three persons, that means there has always been reciprocal love within the Godhead. And the God that loves mourned over our sins. Is God just? Yes, of course he is. God is absolutely fair, but that doesn't mean that he takes delight in punishing the wicked. In fact, the Bible specifically says the opposite. In the Ezekiel, God said, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his evil ways and live. And what Paul's showing us here is that it was the Father, in particular within the Holy Trinity, the Father who determined to save us because of his love. His kindness, his goodness and loving kindness appeared. And what does that mean? Okay, what does it mean to say that it appeared? He saved us. It was God the Father's initiative to save you. It was his plan. It was his decision. Sitting on the throne of heaven, he said, I love these people too much to let them go. We're going to do something to save them. And this is, the, the, within the economy of the Godhead, the workings of the Godhead, this is the distinct role of the Father himself. To be the sovereign decider of heaven. To make these decisions. To choose and to predestinate men for salvation. To say, this shall be done. He's king. 
I'm going to reach down and I'm going to save them because of my love. Sometimes we think of it as God the Father had his arms folded and was looking all grumpy. And Jesus comes up, please, God, won't you please do something for these poor people? It was God himself who said, we're going to save them. We're going to do this. And this salvation, it says, would not be because of works. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. It's not because of works. Now, you might be one of those guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hustle, and I'm going to grind, and I'm going to do everything I can to climb the ladder. And it's like, I don't want anything free from God. I want to be able to do it myself, and you just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. You fool. You fool. You can't do enough. No such thing as can't. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You can't do it. So God says, all right, I love them so much, and I'm also so wise in knowing what they're like, I'm going to have to find a way to save them that does not require them to do anything. Many people think, well, that's just so selfish. You think you can just be saved without doing anything? First of all, this whole book has been about driving us to good works. But secondly, you have a rather high view of people if you think that we could earn it. Sorry, we're, we have a very honest look at people. It wasn't because of our works. It was because of his own mercy, it says. So we've got goodness and loving kindness. Throw mercy into the mix. He took pity on our sinful frame. The Lord looked at us and saw they'll never be able to do anything. I could ask them anything. That's, that's what Romans 2 is all about. It doesn't matter what law it is. You can't keep it. I said, well, I, I always do the right thing, really. Have you always and forever kept your own code of what is right all the time? Well, nobody can. Yeah, there you go. The Lord knew that. So he says, so if I'm going to have to do something to save these people, I'm going to have to do something that is not going to be up to their sinful flesh. I'll provide a salvation that can be offered freely. Freely. Verse 7, Paul is going to use forensic language, which is judicial or law language, to describe that God justified us by his grace. And we'll return to that. But justified is, I'm going to declare you just, which is righteous or not guilty. Is you are guilty, but I'm going to justify you by my grace. That means by a gift. This is all the domain of God the Father here. And this seems rather Loving and kind, doesn't it? If you have a picture of God the Father as just the wrathful thundercloud of heaven, you've got it all wrong. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. It was the initiative and the decision and the heart of God the Father to save you and me. Sometimes God is called the monarch of the Trinity, meaning he is that one that takes the initiative and the others are generally and usually in submission to him. It was God moved by his compassion, the father of love who decided to save us. That's the role that the father played in this. He made that sovereign, eternal, heavenly decision. We're going to do something about this. All right. Well, we're going to move on and see what the father did. We're still modifying that controlling verb there. He saved us. Remember that the sentence could be broken down to God saved us. And we saw why did he save us? Because of his compassion and because of his mercy and because of his loving kindness. He, uh, he demonstrated those things. How? How? We keep reading. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. This was done. This salvation, this saving of us, that was the outworking of the heart of God the Father, was done by the washing of the Holy Spirit. You're starting to see now what I can loosely call the teamwork of the Trinity. This is how God does things. The Father made the decision, and the Spirit was sent to accomplish that decision. And he says that we were washed in the Spirit, that it was poured out. He was poured out. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit is often and usually described metaphorically. Very often, the Spirit is compared to water, or He's compared to wind, or He's compared to fire. He's compared to breath quite often. It might be a fun Bible study for you to go through the Bible. If you're going to do your read your Bible in a year thing, just keep a notebook to the side and say every time it uses a different illustration to describe the Holy Spirit, I'm going to write it down, and then I'm going to say, what does that teach me about God that He's compared in that way? 
Make no mistake, though, just because we are using these metaphors to describe the Holy Spirit, this does not mean that he is impersonal. The Holy Spirit is a him. He is not an it. You can see how it is translated there, whom. There are many other places where it uses the specific masculine personal pronoun in the New Testament. So we're going to read some of those today. So I'm, again, not going to demonstrate that. Just going to remind us of that. But here he's using a, a liquid, he's using a water metaphor, that the Spirit is the one washing us, that he has been poured out. So many folks, just they, they don't like some of the language we use when we pray. They say, oh, I don't like talking about the Spirit being sent, or the Spirit being poured out, or the Spirit filling us up. It's, well, my friends, that's a language the Bible uses in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'll give you some examples here. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 is, is like... If you know one chapter from that book, know them all, you know, but like if you have to know one, pick this one because it's all about the new covenant, the new deal that God promised he would someday make. And because we are now living under that new covenant, it describes our relationship with God right now. So let me read this. God promised, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God says, I'm going to change your heart by sending my Holy Spirit. And he compares that to being washed with clean water, which is the language that Paul is using here. And for a New Testament example, we look at John chapter 7. This is the words of Jesus. In verse 37 through 39, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, this would be the Feast of Tabernacles, if I'm not mistaken, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John gives us an aside here. The author says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as not yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So you see there he's comparing the Holy Spirit to a cold drink of water and to having rivers of water flowing out of your heart. Both of those passages I just read help us understand the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation, which Paul is describing here, and he compares him to water, being washed, being poured out. So let's now move aside from the illustration and talk about what, what actually happens here. In order to affect that salvation that the Father had determined in his love to do for us, he sent his Holy Spirit he sent his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. Not third in rank, just third in the order in which we talk about them. Notice also it says that he was sent through Jesus Christ. We'll return to him in just a minute. For two things. God sent his Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, to do two things. Number one, regeneration. Regeneration might well be called defibrillation. Your heart had stopped spiritually. It was not beating. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. That didn't mean that there was nothing worthwhile about you. It doesn't mean that you're just this evil, wicked person to the core. It means that you are corrupt and you're dead. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He regenerates you. Clear. And your heart starts to beat again. You start to breathe again. You come alive. You sit up. Oh, man, I must have been out for a little while. You're alive spiritually where before you were dead spiritually. This you might call that salvation moment. When you first believe in Christ and are born again, you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. But secondly, for renewal. Renewal. When you're saved and that regeneration happens, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. Isn't that pretty cool to think about? You've got the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you, living in the tabernacle of your heart. Well, what he does, he comes in and applies that salvation, but that's not the end of it. He now starts to transform you from the inside out. How many of y'all noticed that when you got saved, certain things that you never had a problem with all of a sudden started to bother you? Yeah. I don't think I can talk that way anymore. I don't think I can do that at business anymore. I really don't think I can treat my wife or my husband like that any longer. These things just start to be changed. Or at the very least, even if you haven't fixed it yet, like, why am I guilty? I used to do this all the time. 
I've seen this where sometimes people will have a moment of weakness or maybe it's just ignorance. They don't really know what they're doing and they say, oh, my old buddies, I'm going to go out and we're going to see them again. And you start doing all the things you used to do and you go, I, I have no joy in these things anymore. I'd, I'd rather be serving the Lord. I'd rather be abstaining from these things. That's that change, that inner transformation. Sometimes it's called sanctification. So if that regeneration is the first moment of, of awakening, renewal is that ongoing process by which the Spirit transforms you. The Holy Spirit is often called the agent of the Godhead, the, the one who does the purposes and the plans of the Holy Trinity. He makes possible in reality what the Father determined in eternity. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That kind of rhymes. You like that? He affects in reality what the Father determined in eternity. And of course, it's all related to what Jesus Christ determined on Calvary, on the cross, right? Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 8. And I'll tell you, I just about had in here to quote the entirety of Romans 8. Because <laughs> it's all about that process of being changed by the Holy Spirit. But I just picked a good one from the, from the list. Go read the rest of it if you want. It says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It says if the, the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead has come to live inside you, Paul goes, don't you think that means you're going to receive life too? You're going to receive life now, but also life when you die and you are brought to heaven. That's that work of the Holy Spirit. So the Father determined to save you. The Holy Spirit came down, awakened your heart, and has begun to transform it day by day by day. And not only that, this is not just God doing the bare minimum. It says the Holy Spirit was poured out richly. Richly. That's kind of a special word, I think, to use describing God's relationship with us. That time does not permit us to talk about all the, the blessings and the riches of the Holy Spirit. I would say the power that the Holy Spirit gives you for your life, the calling He places on your life, the gifts He gives you, the signs and the wonders that are demonstrated in your life, that's all part of it. There's that work of Him of being filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. Another water metaphor, right? Be baptized in the Holy Spirit like you're baptized in water, the riches of the Holy Spirit never cease to amaze us. In fact, did you know that the person of the Godhead with which you have the most interaction is the Holy Spirit? The Father is in heaven and the Son is seated at His right hand. So when you pray, when you encounter and experience God, that's the Holy Spirit. Now there's another Trinitarian doctrine called perichoresis where we believe, remember Jesus said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's called mutual indwelling. That when you have the Spirit, you also have Jesus. And you also have the Father. But if we want to be specific about it, all your encounters of God have been encounters with the Holy Spirit. So if you grew up in a church that, I'm, I, if this happened to you, I'm so sorry. But if you grew up in a church that taught you to be afraid of the Holy Spirit, my friends, if you know God at all, you know the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid of Him. Well, I just don't know what's going to happen. Jesus tells us what God is like. If you're comfortable with Jesus, man, you're going to love the Holy Spirit who brings the person of God, not just to your head, but to your heart and to your reality. So we're starting to see that the Trinity is active as the Holy Spirit works to redeem every Christian, even as we speak. And this is all done, he says, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, in this passage, Paul doesn't give much description to what Jesus did, the second person of the Godhead. But that does not leave us bereft. There are plenty of passages that talk about what Christ has done, aren't there? God poured out the Spirit through Jesus. That's pretty cool. That's one of the reasons we believe in that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, which is the Western position, and I believe it's the right one. But even in that little statement, Paul reminds us of something else that Jesus said that reminds us of what Jesus did to make that even possible. When did Jesus Christ become our Savior? Well, you all know the answer to that. It was at the cross. John 16, 7. This is the Last Supper. This is the dinner that they had before Jesus was arrested and crucified the next day. Jesus told them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, meaning to die and then rise again and ascend to my Father's house. That's to your advantage. And you say, how can you say that? 
He says, because if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And that helper, if you read the rest of those chapters, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says, if I go, I will send him to you. So Paul said, God sent the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Okay, what did Jesus have to say about that? He said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, but that cannot happen until I go away, which is a reference to the cross. Notice, by the way, John 16, 7 is using personal pronouns to describe the Holy Spirit. I will send him to you, not I will send it to you. But he would have to go away. What does that mean, that Jesus would have to go away? Well, what is the story of Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth was not just a man. If you believe that, you're missing it. You're missing it. He was the incarnation, meaning the embodiment of the logos of God, which is a Greek word that means the word of God. He was the son, as he's called, the second person of the Godhead. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There was a point in time where the son took on flesh, became a man, and was born through the womb of a virgin named Mary. We just finished up Christmas time. That's what that's all about, celebrating, right? This is what's called the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ is not just man, nor is he just God. He is both together. He is 100% God and 100% man. So that doesn't mean 50-50. That means 200%. Jesus is 200%. You can put that on a t-shirt. Pretty cool. <laughs> Jesus is 200%. You get the little 100 emoji, but make it 200, you know? That's Jesus. That might be a little cringy. Don't do that. <laughs> But why, why would Jesus do that? Why does it matter whether Jesus was, was God or not? I remember having a discussion with a, a Muslim one time who was being very nice. Hey, we love that you guys are out here telling people about Jesus. You know, we love Jesus too. And that's, to be fair, they do. Muslims do appreciate Jesus. However, what, he said, you know, we all really believe the same thing. To which you have to say, I was just a kid at the time, and the person I was with said, well, I love you, brother, but no, we don't. <laughs> We don't believe the same thing. He says, we're, we believe that Jesus Christ, and the guy kind of cuts him off, yeah, yeah, I know, we, but we can go back and forth. Was Jesus a prophet? Was he God? Was he a prophet? Was he God? Does it really matter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. Whether somebody was just a good man with a lot of good things to say, or the eternal cosmic son of God is a bit of a difference. And in fact, this guy was probably not as informed about his own religion because Muslims absolutely abominate the idea of Jesus Christ being the son of God. But I'm not going to get off into that. All the point to say is, why would he do this? Because Jesus Christ needed to have that solidarity with humanity so that he could die on the cross as a willing and suitable sacrifice for sin. Remember, God the Father in his love is determined we're going to save them. But here's the thing. God is also just and righteous and fair. So how is he supposed to allow sinners to go free? You might say, well, why not? Just my, let me go free, you know? All right? What about all the people you've hurt? Would they want you to go free? Well, I mean, you know, the people's got to forgive. Well, why should they? Why should they forgive you? Well, because is that what the Bible says? Yeah, why does the Bible tell us that? Tell us to forgive because God did. God said, I've got to forgive them. But the thing is, God goes, I can't just let them go because that wouldn't be right. It's not that God was bound and compelled. It wouldn't be right. So God goes, here's what I will do. If I can pour out all of my wrath upon a man who willingly will take the penalty, who does not deserve the penalty, that sacrifice will count. But where are you going to find a man like that? Where are you going to find a man who, number one, is perfect and not just like, oh, you know, he only messes up sometimes. No, never sinned. Where are you going to find a man like that? Number two, even if you found a man like that, how are you going to convince him? Would you please take on all the sins of the whole world? And even if he was willing to do that, there's a verse in the Psalms that says, no man can ransom the life of another. He's only got one life to give, so he might be able to save one person, but he can't save everybody. So what are we going to do? We're stuck. God says, I will send my son, the Logos, and he will become a man. He'll be sinless because he will be God in flesh. He will be willing to die for all because the whole thing motivating all of this is the love of heaven. And his life will be able to count for many because his life is everlasting. It's not just one life. So Jesus Christ had to become a man to die on that cross to satisfy God's wrath so that he could offer forgiveness freely. 
freely. You know, you give something away for free. It's free to the person who gets it, but you generally had to pay for it yourself. Now, children think the electricity is free because they don't pay for it. And I don't begrudge giving my children electricity, but it's not free. I had to pay for it. In the same way, your salvation is free, and yet it cost Jesus Christ everything. Everything. Well, how do we know it worked? Y'all, because Jesus rose from the dead. Because death could not hold him down, which means he can communicate that same life to you so that death will not hold you down. He ascended to heaven, and then, as he promised, sent the Holy Spirit. Because now we've made it possible. God the Father says, let's save them. Jesus goes and does everything possible to make salvation available. Then the Holy Spirit comes and starts handing out salvation. Do you see the Trinitarian shape of the gospel here? The Holy Spirit comes and regenerates us and begins to renew us. And all of this was prophesied from the beginning. Isaiah 53, again, worth reading the entire chapter, but the prophet prophesied and said, Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And that is what they thought about Jesus. Well, God finally caught up with him. Look, if he was really the son of God, would he be stretched out on a cross like that with nails in his hands and feet and crown of thorns on his head? Oh, yes. Because Isaiah said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Every bit of pain he bore on the cross, he did not deserve, you did. But he said, I love them so much, I'll take the penalty for them. When you believe... The Holy Spirit takes the blood of Jesus, so to speak, and applies it to your heart. He washes you clean in the blood of Christ, and you are born again. Somebody commented on one of our videos on YouTube recently. I've been getting some grumpy fellas on that that thing, I'll tell you. But they didn't care for the idea of being born again. That's just something that was made up in the early 1900s. People started talking about being born again. It's like, really? Because Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if you are not born again, you will by no means see the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. Remember, that's the whole thing. He says, well, how can I be born? How can I go back in my mother's womb? And Jesus goes, come on, man, you know this. Born of water and the Spirit. Born again. Jesus Christ did everything possible so that you could be reborn. It's not just a matter of saying, I'm starting fresh right now. It's God saying, you're forgiven. Now go start fresh right now. Jesus is the key, the most highly exalted name of all, the one who's made all of this possible for us. We know that the God planned it and the Holy Spirit makes it happen, but what happened in the middle is Jesus died and rose again. The Father was moved to compassion. So he sent his son to purchase redemption so that he could then send the spirit to wash us clean. And all of it was done freely because of his grace, justified by his grace. Can you see this Trinitarian shape of the gospel that the gospel itself testifies to the nature of God? So what of all this? What does all this mean? I'll tell you that this is not merely a demonstration of a doctrinal position. I've done that. i got no problem with that. But that's not really what Paul's getting at here. That's not really what I'm getting at either. It's just to prove something to you. Verse 7 tells us of the change that has taken place. We are justified by His grace. That means you are no longer guilty before God if you have been washed in the blood of Jesus. If what he just described has happened to you, you are no longer guilty. Oh, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't need to know what you've done. You've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. It's over. Is there anything better than to know you've done wrong and then somebody tells you, it's okay, I forgive you. The load lifted off your shoulders. Well, God has done that for you. He's lifted every burden off of your shoulders. It doesn't matter what it is, how severe it might be, or how small and insignificant to our eyes. God has forgiven all of those things. Can you imagine that? Can you even receive that this morning? Can you even sit there and think, I'm not not guilty anymore. 
I'm not guilty anymore. Because the minute you say that, you have something inside your head that starts to scream, no, 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 how can you say that? You're, you're just trying to shrug off all the things that you've done. No, you must endure this and pay the cost. Why? Jesus already paid it. Jesus already paid it. God took the initiative to save you before you were deserving. Romans 5.8, man, that's that VBS verse. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's not waiting for you to get cleaned up. You invite people to church and they say, well, look, I've got to get my act together. I've got to stop doing this. I've got to, you know, I, I know I've got to clean things up. No, you're getting it wrong. God has already reached out to save you. You don't got to get it right first. Remember all the way back to it's not our works? You can't fix it. So God's I'm just going to save you anyway. He took the initiative to save you. He has declared you to be righteous. This happens in courtrooms, does it not? The judge is going to say one of two things, guilty or not guilty. Well, you are in the courtroom of heaven, and because of what Christ has done, God the Father has said, not guilty. Guilt is hereby banished forever. So when you're in God's church and you start to feel guilty and all the weight of everything you've done starts to fall on your shoulders, you need to tell those feelings to take a hike. How dare the devil raise an accusation against someone for whom Jesus Christ shed his blood as if it wasn't enough to save you. But God has not just removed your punishment. Read that last phrase. He has given us the hope of eternal life. You are an heir. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You are an heir of God. What does that mean? It means you stand next in line to receive the inheritance. Well, I, I can understand forgiveness, but that's taking it a little far. It's not taking it too far. The Bible talks about it over and over and over again. Romans 8 says that we have been brought in by the spirit of adoption. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father, but everyone in here is, if you are in Christ, an adopted Son of God or daughter of God. And Paul then says, and if we're sons, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. Romans 8, go back and read it. That means your destiny is now no longer to die and fade away into the darkness, nor to face the eternal suffering of hell and damnation. You have the hope that eternal life waits for you. I already read John 3, 16. God loved us so much he gave his son for what? So that whoever believes can have everlasting life. Oh, sometimes we can be so foolish, be so tough and say, hey man, if I got, if I got hell coming, then just bring it on. I'm just, I'll take it. I'm, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not afraid to go to hell. You're foolish. You're foolish. I just can't think of letting somebody else do something for me. Well, then that's what's going to bind you. Because Jesus Christ has already done everything for you. Because you couldn't do everything yourself. If you say, I'd be willing to fight for it if, if it was available. You're willing to fight for it, but you won't take it for free? That's pride, man. The hope of eternal life waits for all who believe. This means that death is not the end. That heaven waits for you. That you will enter into everlasting joy and rest. Doesn't that sound nice of rest forever? That you, you walk through life and as the days go on, the Bible says the days come when you no longer have delight in them. Where you're alive and it's not that you're unhappy or you're ungrateful, but it's just not like it used to be. And the thought of entering into the rest of God becomes more and more appealing. You know, that's exactly what God promises you. It's exactly what God promises you. Everlasting joy and rest. Jesus talked about this in John 17. This is a prayer that Jesus lifted up. So he's speaking to his father in these verses. John 17, verses 2 through 3. He says, you have given him, he's speaking in the third person, talking about himself. You've been given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just unending existence. It is the truest and deepest knowledge of God himself. So it's life and life. You know, there are many who are alive and we look at them and we say, that's, that's no life, right? We use phrases like that. That's no kind of life. There's no way to live. Heaven is going to be both of those things. 
It's life and it's life. The knowledge of God. You will increasingly not just experience the secrets and the depths of eternity. You will come to know the one who loved you and died for you. And he will know you. You might think, what, so just going to go to heaven and sing to God all the time? You're missing the point, friends. It's, it's such a cliche to say, but it's true. Every person desires to be loved and to love. I want someone to see everything about me and just love me and accept me the way I am. There are some people that even suffer in their marriages because they feel that there are things they just can't share about themselves with their spouse. And you know what? That's human limitation. But God knows you. And you will see God know every intimate detail of you naked and open before God and then say, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. I love you so much. And then you will have the opportunity to pour your love out on somebody who is eternally deserving, eternally there, and you'll never reach the end of it. It will be an unending flood of heavenly love. And if you think that's not appealing, you haven't thought about it long enough. You haven't thought about it. I have watched everyone from well-loved kids to hardened life-in-prison criminals break down in tears at the simple fact Jesus loves me, this I know. You would think this kid, well, don't they know that don't they know that they're loved? Don't they know their mom and dad care for them? But there's always that doubt. There's always that question. There's always the imperfection of human love. The thought that there's no tricks, nothing behind it. God just loves me. It breaks the heart. And then someone who believes they've done everything to drive everyone away from them. And maybe in our humanity, they aren't lovable. But God comes in and says, I love you anyway. And they break down and they feel the love there. That's going to be eternity. That feeling and growing in that sensation for all of eternity. To know salvation is to know God himself. And isn't that what we've learned this morning? The more you discuss salvation and the gospel, the more you learn about God himself. By looking at what he did, you learn about who he is. God is Trinity as revealed through his unified and yet multifaceted salvation. It's one gospel. And yet each person of the Godhead had a part to play. It must be so. And yet, friends, this is not just information. This is devotion and joy, and worship, and praise unto God. Why? Because we used to be desperate, sick sinners. And maybe you still feel like that sometimes. And maybe you're here, and that's exactly what you are, because you've never come to the Lord in this way. But that's what we used to be. Now the holy, magnificent, triune God has moved heaven and earth to save us. For all who will believe, call upon His name, there is only love, forgiveness, and salvation waiting. What else is there to say but hallelujah? Hallelujah. 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 hallelujah.